In order to get a sense for how broad and deep the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration into American society has actually gotten, my team and I flew over to Tallahassee, Florida, in order to sit down and speak with Mr. Peter Schweizer. Now, Peter is a world-renowned author. He's a researcher as well as an investigative journalist. In fact, you've probably read some of his best-selling books, such as Clinton Cash, Secret Empires, Profiles in Corruption, as well as his latest book, Red Handed, wherein he goes into great depth to expose the Chinese communist strategy known as elite capture. That strategy is the focus of our discussion. And why would Hunter Biden secure so many deals in China when his name is so famous? He's a, f- a famous man, a famous young man, right. y- Yale graduate. Yeah. His last name is that of the VPs. He can get deals across America, across 190 other countries. Why China? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think part of it is that no legitimate businesses wanted to do a deal with Hunter Biden, or you could say the same thing with James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, uh, because they don't bring anything to the table. I mean, if you're, if you're a, a financial investment firm in London or in Tokyo, uh, and you're doing business with a politician's family member, which you know is legitimate, it happens all the time, uh, it's okay as long as they're actually providing a viable service they're either bringing capital to the table or they're bringing an investor to the table or they have some special knowledge in terms of you know, identifying investment opportunities. The Bidens don't present any of those opportunities. Uh, and that's, I think, the beginning point. The second thing you have to factor in is uh, you know, simply the notion that when you're talking about these Chinese entities that have thrown money at the Biden family, I think we also have to operate under a pretty simple assumption that they're not philanthropies. They're not simply giving the Bidens money uh, in exchange for nothing. They want something. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what are they getting in return? And when you look at the cluster of who provided the funds to the Bidens and the fact that the Bidens did not really provide anything tangible in return, this has all the markings of elite capture and of a Chinese intelligence operation. Mm. Um, We looked through the Hunter Biden laptop. We built on the existing research we had done back in 2018 in my book, Secret Empires, because we wanted to identify who made these deals happen in China, how much money are we talking about, and what was Joe Biden's role? And the answers were very clear that the Bidens got some $31 million based on the laptop from a series of deals uh, that happened beginning when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. Uh, And those deals happened courtesy of four uh, Chinese businessmen. And if you look at all four of those Chinese businessmen, they have links to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. I don't mean some sort of, you know, distant connection. I mean, they were directly linked to the highest levels. So if you look at uh, one of the uh, businessmen that helped Hunter Biden in the BHR, the Bohai Harvest private equity deal, which netted him some $20 million, Mm -hmm. that gentleman, at the same time that he was helping Hunter Biden secure that deal, was also business partners with the vice minister for state security, Mm -hmm. who runs the entire spy apparatus of China. And this vice minister's job, by the way, included foreign intelligence recruitment. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the other three businessmen, they have similar types of ties to Chinese intelligence. So it's very clear what the role here was. And, you know, as somebody who lived through the Cold War, I think you're a little bit younger. You probably don't have memories there. Um, The notion that during the Cold War, Jimmy Carter's family or Ronald Reagan's family would have gotten some $31 million from Russian businessmen linked to the KGB 
It'd be sending off alarm bells. That's what happened here. All we're doing is replacing the KGB with the Chinese Ministry of State Security. It's the exact same story, and it ought to be setting off this, the exact same alarm bell. For the viewers, can you break down one of the deals that Hunter Biden struck, maybe one of the deals uh, with BHR, like the nuclear deal or the aviation deal? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, another component of this. I mean, a lot of times people think of the deals and they think that, well, this is a case of you know Hunter Biden and the family making money. But these were actually entities that were arranging deals um, that benefited the Chinese state in a military and national security manner. So Bohai Harvest RST, or BHR, it's a private uh, uh, equity firm fully funded by the Chinese government, run by the Bank of China. Uh, they put Hunter Biden on the board of directors and gave him an ownership stake of the management company. Bizarre, because he literally brings nothing to the deal. But when you look at what this entity, BHR, this, this Chinese government-funded investment firm, starts doing, and Hunter Biden's on the board, they buy a, an anchor investment stake in a firm called CGN, China General Nuclear. Um, this is an atomic power company in China that, within about a year that Hunter Biden's BHR makes a, a major investment in this firm, our FBI uh, arrests senior executives for nuclear espionage. They're actually stealing nuclear secrets in the United States, the company itself, and also senior executives, one of which, Alan Ho, ends up going to jail. And they're interested in small nuclear reactors that have military application. They're so-called dual-use technologies. Uh, there's another example where Hunter Biden's investment firm, again, financed by the Chinese government, where he's on the board, uh, buys 50% uh, of a company in Michigan called Hennigus. It's a sort of precision tool company that develops dual-use technologies. These are anti-vibration technologies that are good for you know, civilian use, but also for military use. What's suspicious about this deal is the other 50% of the company, they buy them in tandem, is the, the, uh, chi the aviation company of China, uh, which has a long history of engaging in espionage in the United States. In fact, uh, many of the technologies they stole from us based on our stealth fighter went into producing their stealth fighter. There are other examples. There's, there's a mining company in Africa that's mining for critical minerals. There's a competition for strategic minerals between Beijing and Washington. Hunter Biden's Chinese firm, again, where he's on the board, buys up mines in Africa that benefit the Chinese state in its competition with the United States. So the bottom line is there are very serious implications for these deals. Hunter Biden's on the board. He has some kind of you know, knowledge of these deals taking place, participation, he's profiting from it. And all of these deals are benefiting the Chinese state in its competition with the United States. It's extraordinary. I've never seen anything like this uh, involving a political family this prominent. So earlier you said that Hunter Biden did not really provide any kind of discernible value to these, to right. these entities and business, to these people. Yes, business value. Business Correct. value. So what, what value, according to your research, what value did he provide? Like what concrete value? It's, it's unclear. It's clear he, he got some value. They received something out of it. You know, you're, you're in the realm of speculation because if you look through the emails, you look through the emails of his business partners, which we've looked at, you look at what the activities of these businesses are, Hunter Biden secured no deals for them. He brought in no outside capital. Um, 
There's nothing. So you, you come to, he provides, provided some uh, political interference role uh, because these Chinese entities were doing deals in the United States and some of those deals required approval by the Biden-Obama administration for approval so he could provide a political interference. There could have been some intelligence role. I mean, if they gained leverage over him, it's, it's well known some of the personal uh, problems that Hunter Biden has had. Uh, they could have leveraged him and used him for an in intelligence source, blackmailed him. Those are the areas where I think the investigation needs to proceed. We now are aware of the extent of the financial relationships, what they entailed. Now the next question is, what were they getting for their money? Because I think everybody can agree, as I said earlier, they didn't uh, expect nothing in return. They expected something in return. And the fact that the money continued to flow is an indication that they got something in return. So let me ask you this. So your research implicates Hunter. Yeah. But do you, do you have any evidence or any research that would show that Joe Biden also you know, benefit financially from any of these deals? Uh, yes, we do. I mean, what's interesting, and the emails make this clear, is that within the Biden family, money is fungible. It moves around. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this. Some of this is Hunter Biden himself. Uh, you know, there's messages in the uh, laptop where he's communicating with his daughter. His daughter's in, the in her 20s. She's asking Hunter for money. Any parent who has a child in their 20s probably has had this kind of conversation. Uh, and Hunter basically replies, look, I don't have a lot of money right now. Um, you're going to have to kind of stand on your own. But, you know, going forward, as you get older, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to do what pop, meaning Joe Biden has asked me to do, which is turn over half my money. Uh, so this is Hunter Biden saying uh, that he goes out and makes money, but some of that money is going to his dad or is going to other family members, and that's his role in the family. Now, you could look at this and say, well, this is maybe this is hyperbole. Hunter's having a bad day. He's frustrated. As you dig further into the laptop, you see that Hunter Biden is collecting this money from overseas, from China, from Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, but that he's also paying his father's monthly bills. Um, that's interesting because it not only shows that Joe Biden's a beneficiary of these foreign deals, it's actually illegal. Uh, politicians are not allowed to have family members subsidize their lifestyles by paying their bills. Mm -hmm. But in addition to monthly bills, Hunter Biden's also making payments on renovations on Joe Biden's home in Delaware when he's having work done on the house. So it's very clear that Joe Biden is a direct beneficiary of these deals. When he leaves the vice presidency in January of 2017, other foreign deals are in the works, including with CEFC, the Chinese energy company. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the email, the, the Hunter's going to hold 10% for the big guy, uh, comes into play. So after he left the vice presidency, he was going to start to be juiced in to some of these overseas deals. And the truly, I think, scary part on top of that is the plans were for Joe Biden to actually share office space in Washington, D.C. with some of these Chinese companies and with his son. The only reason that didn't take place is the FBI arrested executives from CEFC. Mm -hmm. And then I think the handwriting was so on the wall uh, that they had to step away from it. So this was the Biden family working very closely with these entities. Hunter would, Hunter would collect the money. Some of the money would go to James Biden. But Joe Biden himself was absolutely a financial beneficiary of these deals. Is this co common just outside of the Biden family as well? 
Now, what you just watched was only about 10% of the entire interview. If you want to watch the full interview, which includes a deep dive into how this elite capture strategy by the Chinese Communist Party has been playing itself out on Wall Street, within education, within the entertainment industry, as well as in big tech, you can do so over on Epic TV. The link will be right there at the very top of the description box, and you can click on it and head on over to watch the full entire interview. If we engage in China, which means giving them access to our markets, to our technology, uh, that the CCP was going to liberalize. This assumption uh, has encouraged the growth and the power of the CCP. It was spectacularly wrong. Now they are somebody that has an important seat at the table, and it has transformed a lot of the discussion and the debate that we, that we face today. And they've leveraged their position to get companies like Microsoft and like Google uh, to not only do business deals with them, but to actually subsidize critical industries like the area of artificial intelligence. Anyone who gets entangled in doing business with China that requires their good graces for their business to continue to operate is going to end up basically doing what Beijing wants, because if they don't, Beijing is going to destroy their business. In order to get a sense for how broad and deep the Chinese Communist Party's infiltration into American society has actually gotten, my team and I flew over to Tallahassee, Florida in order to sit down and speak with Mr. Peter Schweizer. Now, Peter is a world-renowned author. He's a researcher as well as an investigative journalist. In fact, you've probably read some of his best-selling books, such as Clinton Cash, Secret Empires, Profiles in Corruption, as well as his latest book, Red-Handed, wherein he goes into great depth to expose the Chinese communist strategy known as elite capture. That strategy is the focus of our discussion. The first thing I, is I want to tell you, I appreciate your work quite a bit because I reference your work a lot on my show and on other and articles you. in the Epic Times. It's well-sourced, fact-based. And I want to revolve today's discussion around the content of your most recent book, Red-Handed. So in order to, let's, let's set the stage properly for this interview. Can you please explain what happened in 2001? Maybe to somebody like your grandkid who might have not been around at that time, they didn't understand the political situation. What was the situation in 2001 in regards to China? What were the elites in this country promising in exchange for them joining the WTO? And what was the general proverbial wisdom about what would happen inside of China after they opened up? Yeah, I mean, the conventional wisdom for American foreign policy, both political parties, the corporate world, the government world, has been that if we engage in China, which means giving them access to our markets, to our technology, uh, that the CCP was going to liberalize, uh, that somehow they were going to become more like us, you know, not only wearing jeans and listening to our music, but, you know, start talking about Thomas Jefferson and some of these uh, Western liberal ideas. Uh, that clearly did not happen. And I think this constitutes the biggest foreign policy failure uh, that we've had in America over the last half century. Uh, and it's important to realize that, that this assumption uh, has encouraged the growth and the power of the CCP. I always think it's important to draw a distinction between the Chinese people and the CCP. Uh, the CCP, which rules with an iron fist in a lot of 
respects, you could say the Chinese people are the biggest victims of what the CCP has done. But we've enabled that political party uh, to grow more powerful, uh, to grow more substantial on the global stage because of this premise that if we give them access to our markets, our technology, and our capital, uh, that somehow they're going to liberalize. And not only was that incorrect, it was spectacularly wrong. Mm. Uh, the CCP's become more repressive, more aggressive on the global stage. So I think that our political and corporate elites have a lot of accounting to do for their failure. Um, of course, they made a lot of money by pushing this position, uh, but the results for us, and I would say for the globe writ large, has been disastrous. So to give someone an idea of what exactly uh, the change was in 2001, maybe somebody who doesn't understand, what what on the ground practical elements changed uh, once the uh, CCP and, the, and China joined the WTO? Well, it gave them a voice in the way that the global economy was going to be run. It reduced uh, and really eliminated a lot of trade uh, barriers that existed uh, protecting markets. Um, but it also allowed them to sort of gum up the works at the World Trade Organization to where legitimate complaints about uh, the Chinese government's protection of its markets, the fact that it was subsidizing certain corporations, never really got addressed at the, uh, at the WTO because they were able to pressure and really bully that organization. So it changed the uh, global playing field where it came to economics completely, whereas on the past, the CCP was on the outside kind of looking in. Uh, now they are uh, somebody that has an important seat at the table, and it has transformed a lot of the discussion and the debate that we, that we face today. Mm -hmm. And we're still dealing with those repercussions and there's no indication that the current administration, the Biden administration, wants to do anything to repair that failing. So, so that's that's a lot to unpack there, from from what, where they were to what was expected to happen to what actually happened. Because it seems like like what you said, the CCP used this as a platform to address to to pursue their global hegemony. Now, one of the strategies that you discussed extensively in your book is called elite capture. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, I mean, it's really a brilliant strategy in a way. Um, uh, Beijing, uh, the CCP recognizes, as, as other governments do, that they have rivals, that they have enemies, uh, they have strategic competitors. Uh, and the idea of elite, ca elite capture is pretty simple. Rather than going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a foreign government or a foreign power, whether that's Australia, New Zealand, or the United States, we're going to effectively co-opt elements of their leadership class whether that's political leaders or corporate or economic leaders, we're gonna give them special access to our market, we're gonna give them sweetheart deals, we're going to enrich them, and that's gonna transform them into possibly being cheerleaders for us and our policies, or at a minimum, it's gonna give us leverage over them. Because once we've sort of touched them uh, and made them rich, or as some CCP officials have said, they've tasted the honey uh, that they've been offered, they will not want to give it back. They will not want to give it up. Um, so that gives enormous leverage to uh, uh, Beijing over elements of our leadership class. And if you look at the results, it's working. I mean, once the myth has continued to fade that Beijing was gonna liberalize because of greater access to technology and trade, then they started to rest on this sort of de facto alliance or this relationship they had with political elites through elite capture and use that leverage to continue to perpetuate the idea um, that we don't want to have any confrontation with Beijing. We don't want to consider restricting their access to our technology.
technology, to our capital markets. We don't want to have too many aggressive tariffs because this is going to have terrible consequences for the globe. So Elite Capture has worked for a minimal investment. They've enriched members of our leadership class, and that leadership class has in turn done their bidding, effectively doing their lobbying in the United States. It seems like in, in that sort of a situation, everybody gets something in return except for the actual people, except for the people of the United States of America. That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. And effectively what they're doing is decapitating our leadership. Our leadership is supposed to be, you know, the head that is thinking about how to deal with our rivals on the global stage like China. But in fact, the head has effectively been cut off. It's been co-opted. It's been bought. And then so the rest of the body, which is the United States and the average citizen, suffers. So in the book, you, you discuss elite capture and you break it down into what, what I take away as five big categories. You have big tech, entertainment, education, Wall Street, as well as the political circles in general. So let's go through them one by one, starting with big tech. So big tech is one of the biggest industries in, in the world, definitely in America, in, in the world as well. It makes up about 52% of the NASDAQ. So how could it be that such a wealthy industry with so many of the top companies having just so much cash on hand and even being run by some of the most wealthy individuals on the planet, you know, you have the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Bezoses, the, uh, the Elon Musks, how could those people be captured by the CCP? It's a great question. I mean, that was the paradox for me because you understand the motivation of money. You know, let's say you have an American politician that doesn't have a lot of worth and then Beijing says, hey, we'll, we'll give you $20 million through business deals. You understand the motivation there. It's the money. But how do you effectively buy off somebody worth $100 billion already? That's the question. And I think the answer comes to this sort of bizarre appeal that the dictatorial regime in Beijing has as a model for people in Silicon Valley. And so how does this manifest itself? Well, you find a lot of code words that are used by people like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or even the guys that, that some of the guys that run Google. Mm. Um, and that is they talk about the efficiency of the dictatorial regime. Elon Musk has said this, that you know the Chinese uh, uh, dictatorial regime is so efficient, they're so, so quickly responsive uh, to the needs of, of the Chinese people, which of course, if you have a dictatorship, you don't have to worry about civil rights, property rights, an independent judiciary. Um, so that is part of the appeal. And when you are somebody in the tech space who is used to building a company where because of the shareholder ownership structure, uh, they effectively have dictatorial control of their own businesses, you can see how that translates to foreign governance. You have the messiness of the United States. You have the quote-unquote efficiency of the Chinese regime. And because they are so concerned about issues like climate change or population control, or they want e you know, efficient uh, development of infrastructure, they gravitate towards uh, the Beijing regime. Mm -hmm. But the other part of this, in, in addition to the I appeal of the idea, is that there is still the entrance in market share of getting into the Chinese market. I mean, if you're Bill Gates and you're worth $100 billion, still being able to access the Chinese market is important for the continued growth of your company. Mm -hmm. So Beijing has used that as well. And they've leveraged their position to get companies like Microsoft and like Google uh, to not only do business deals with them, but to actually subsidize critical industries like the area of artificial intelligence, where 
Beijing says that there is this, you know, battle going on between the United States and China for supremacy mm -hmm. in artificial intelligence research. Uh, President Xi has said whoever seizes the commanding heights in that race will win the technological war. And yet our biggest and brightest companies like Google and Microsoft are actually subsidizing research laboratories in China that are linked to the Chinese military. So they're helping them in the competition against us. So it's really quite extraordinary and it's troubling and it's not just a function of money. It's a, a, they're, they're enamored with the very idea of dictatorship, which is what's so troubling. Okay, so you mentioned the example of Google, which is a great, great uh, case. Let, let's highlight that a bit more. So with Google, they were helping to create an AI, AI technology within China, which is ironic because at the same time, Google employees were effectively almost threatening to boycott working at Google because Google was yeah. going to help the Pentagon. Can you lay that out a bit? Yeah, I mean, it's it's stunning. I mean, so you've got Google sponsoring a artificial intelligence research laboratory uh, and, and connected to another one, so there's really two, involving Google and China. And these are research laboratories that are known to be linked to the Chinese military. Uh, and Google has plowed ahead happily to do so. At the same time, Google employees submitted a petition to executives saying they did not want to work on any Pentagon, that is U.S. military research contracts at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's really a stunning uh, development. Um, you know, my view is that if you are a company that has grown and that has benefited from our system of freedom uh, and you have a rival or you could even say enemy state like the CCP in China, uh, you should not be working with them and cooperating with them. And the defense that, you know, well, this isn't necessarily legal is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. This represents an existential threat to the United States. So it goes to the heart and the core of what the problem is with Silicon Valley, which is these big companies that have benefited from the protection of U.S. laws, from the protection of U.S. government and, and all that that entails, our system of governance. They benefited from all that to become these large, massive companies, largely unhindered by our government, uh, and yet uh, they don't recognize the role that our system of governance has played, and they're actually subsidizing our enemy. Wow. Uh, that is stunning and I think very troubling. I, I'd like you to explain something to the viewers who might be watching this interview, and they might not understand exactly what the implications are of Google doing AI business with a private company in China. Because a lot of people don't understand the overlap between pri private business and public entities within the Chinese system. Can you explain how that actually works within the CCP-controlled China? Yeah, I mean, the artificial intelligence work that Google is doing uh, is linked to two universities. And those universities, literally in the same building as the artificial intelligence laboratory, uh, have offices whose task is civilian military fusion. Uh, and this is a requirement of any entity in China. It does not matter if you're state-backed, if you're allegedly private, if you're a university, you're required by Chinese national security law, which means if you violate it, you're going to go to jail for a very long time. You're required to take any civilian technology or capability you have and find application to Chinese military. Uh, and that's what you're talking about in these research elements. And there are numerous examples that I mentioned in the book where uh, Google has participated in other joint research projects where that research ended up being directly applied to the Chinese government's military capabilities, including their self-fighter. 
so the question is, where's their self-fighter aimed? What is the adversary that they have in mind? It's the United States. So Google is subsidizing our military rival, helping them literally develop weapons that are pointed at us and at our military and our allies in the Asia Pacific region. And, and besides just the, just the military application, which of course is, is frightening in and of itself, but correct me if I'm wrong, is it true that the national security law also makes it so that any data stored, uh, stored by Chinese companies in general, no matter what application it has, can be pulled by the CCP. Is that Absolutely, yes. I mean, that, that's a critical point. I mean, if you are a business operating in China, uh, anything that you have that you own, whether it's intellectual property, whether it's data on citizens in China or overseas, uh, that information is it available to the Chinese state whenever they ask for it. So that applies to companies that are operating in China. It applies to companies like TikTok uh, or ByteDance, which, which owns them, which is operating in the United States. That data can be accessed by the Chinese state and a company has no recourse they can't go to an independent judiciary. They can't go to some governing body and appeal it. They are required to hand that over immediately. Can you uh, tell us about the case of Facebook? It was a rather high profile case a few years ago where they were trying to build an undersea cable linking Hong Kong to San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a remarkable example to me of, of where these big tech companies are. And I, I don't think they can appeal to uh, ignorance uh, because they're far more knowledgeable on these matters than anyone else. But in 2016, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, along with support from Google, uh, wanted to build a cable, the so-called Pacific Light cable. They were going to link Hong Kong to San Francisco, and it was going to substantially enhance, you know, data transmission between the two uh, cities. Um, and so they started construction on this, and they, of course, picked a Chinese company linked to the Chinese military uh, to build this cable. What could go wrong, right? Well, the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice got wind of this, and in 2019, they said, wait a minute, you can't do this. If you complete this cable between Hong Kong and San Francisco, it's going to create what they call a quote unquote unprecedented opportunity for Chinese intelligence to spy on Americans not just Chinese citizens to spy on Americans uh, and they halted the project and so the question you have to ask is did the FBI or the Department of Justice figure out something technologically that Facebook or Google didn't know? I mean, did somehow Facebook or Google not know that Chinese intelligence was going to use this as a massive gateway to spy on Americans? I want to believe, and I think it's pretty obvious, that Facebook and Google knew that that opportunity existed. They certainly have more technological knowledge than the Department of Justice. But the bottom line is, they didn't care. Mm -hmm. They were so wrapped up with the idea of the data link and what it would mean for their companies, what it would mean in terms of their profitability, they didn't care that they were creating this entryway, this gateway for Chinese intelligence to spy on the United States. And that, to me, is a frightening portrait of where the leadership of these companies actually are. That is frightening is, I believe, the right word. And it seems almost like they're thinking because I sometimes I look at these things and I think, wow, it doesn't make sense. But I believe when I when I look at something and it doesn't make sense, what actually is happening is that their thinking is based on a different premise than my thinking is. Yes. So I believe that when you look at movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s or you know any of the big movies like 
James Bond films, for instance. Right. People were very clear about the danger of the USSR. Right. They, they were clear about keeping them out, isolating them, seeing them as this entity to be to be fought against. But now it seems like with these companies, like like with the example of Facebook you just gave, they just see it as, a, as another country to do business with. They don't. They're not seeing it as this communist threat existential threat to America. Yeah, right? I, th I, think, I think that's vitally important. And I think a lot of times the Chinese government tries to blur this or the people that advocate on their behalf try to blur this and to say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a Marxist-Leninist country per se. And, you know, what you're seeing from China are certain cultural attributions to China. I, that's, that's just hogwash. I mean, when you look at, when the CCP holds events, uh, they have flags that show Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. Uh, they weren't born in Shanghai. <laughs> They're not from Beijing. Uh, this is, the CCP is a foreign political operation uh, that Mao Zedong brought to power and is now occupying China. And it represents the exact same kind of regime that we saw in the Soviet Union, we saw in East Germany, that we still see in some semblance in Cuba today. That's what it's modeled after. Um, so the notion that this is somehow kind of a blurred state between traditional Chinese culture and, and the Chinese Communist Party, to me is, is highly insulting to Chinese culture. Because what this is, is a Chinese Communist Party police state uh, and they have global ambitions they talk about those global ambitions uh, and the people that are ruling China know what the excesses of the regime are this dictatorial regime but they don't care uh, look at President Xi whose own father uh, was thrown into prison uh, because he ran awry of the, the of the police state that didn't make President Xi more liberal. That didn't lead him to reject, reject uh, the Chinese Communist authority. It led him to embrace it. Uh, so we are dealing with a regime in Beijing that is far more of a threat than the Soviet Union was. Yes, the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons, and I'm not certainly minimizing that, but China has them in increasingly number increasing numbers, but even more importantly, the Beijing regime has a lot of economic muscle and power that the Soviet Union never had. Um, the problem with the Soviet Union was they were basically a third world country with nuclear weapons. What we have in China is a regime that has declared its ambitions openly, as the Soviet Union did, but it has nuclear weapons capability that's growing, but it has a aggressive economy that gives it the capability to really compete with the United States in a very direct and clear way. So we need to be clear about that and recognize that our the threat we face is from a communist regime every bit as much as what we saw in the Soviet Union. It's not Marxist-Leninist, it's what I call quasi-market Leninist, mm. but it's a Leninist dictatorship every bit as much as the Soviet Union was. So what you said there is very key, and it ties into, I, I think, our next our next point on the elite capture process, which is Wall Street, yeah. because their economy is largely subsidized by America. Yeah. Can you give us uh, some some concrete examples of how this elite capture uh, strategy has been working on Wall Street elites? Yeah, I mean, every, you don't have to go uh, very far at all on Wall Street to find a major firm that has contributed to uh, where China is today in terms of its economic growth. Uh, if you go back to the 1990s, there was a very particular problem. There was a very clear tension between the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and the efforts for market reform that was taking place inside of China. 
China. And the tension was the CCP did not want to cede power to the market forces. So who stepped into the breach and came up with the grand bargain that allowed the CCP to maintain control, but some market forces to exist? It wasn't the CCP, it was Goldman Sachs. It was Goldman Sachs that helped them engineer what we see today, which is this sort of quasi-market that exists. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, it's the CCP that maintains control. Um, Goldman Sachs started it. Other big firms have perfected it. Blackstone and BlackRock uh, invest regularly in Chinese companies. When the Chinese government was privatizing companies and giving away ownership stakes to either political families in Beijing or to favor Wall Street clients, these big firms benefited enormously. Uh, if you look at what happened with Hong Kong, uh, when, when the full transition to full CCP power occurred, uh, you know, just in 2016, 2017 and going on today, uh, you had a similar takeover occur where the CCP wanted firms in Hong Kong to write into their actual corporate charters that the CCP was in charge. Mm -hmm. Now, this had to be approved by shareholders of Hong Kong companies because of the way those corporate charters were put together. Who led the charge? BlackRock. BlackRock, which owns a lot of shares in a lot of companies in Hong Kong, actually voted in favor of this resolution ceding control to the CCP. Other financial firms in the United States, like Vanguard, actually voted against it. So the rise of China's ability to capture the ben certain benefits of the market while not ceding political control, that sort of you know ugly... Uh, positioning of corporate power did not occur because the CCP came up with it. That was actually invented by people on Wall Street who got very rich uh, helping the CCP establish control over these companies. And actually, as you were talking, I just realized how intertwined this all is, this, these five different categories of elite capture, because Wall Street and big tech, let's look at the example of Tesla, one of the fastest growing stocks, uh, tech stocks of last year, of, of 2021. And what happened with, with Tesla? Elon Musk was previously very outspoken against China. Yep. However, now, well, why don't you tell the story? I read it in your books. You're right. And I mean, it's a really curious development because Elon Musk, I mean, I think part of the appeal that, that he has to so many people is he's so open and outspoken. He's prepared to say things that other very wealthy people won't say. Uh, and he used to be that way with regards to China. I mean, he criticized China for its uh, uh, tariffs on imported goods. He talked about his desire to build this sort of uh, internet um, system based on satellites around the planet. He joked, oh, I better not put any satellites over China because the government might shoot them down. They don't want free speech in China. He's changed completely. I mean, today what he says is the Chinese government's more responsive to the needs of their people than our representative government of the United States is to the American people. He's praised the Chinese Communist Party. He talks about how efficient the government is there. And so the question is, is what's changed? And what's changed is he became business partners with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they built him a large factory, Tesla factory in China, which is now churning out a large number of vehicles. He's already said he's going to take the design studios out of California and move them uh, to China. Uh, and if you look at Tesla corporate documents, uh, projection for the future, it's all wedded towards this relationship with Beijing. Mm -hmm. uh, now that 
is just a car company, you might think. This only has implications for that one company. But the problem is a guy like Elon Musk, he's involved in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. So in addition to Tesla, of course, he has SpaceX. Uh, which launches lots of military satellites and spy satellites for the United States. And the concern that a lot of people in the tech space have is that some of the technologies that Tesla uses uh, in its cars are the same technologies, software for example, that are being used on these launch satellites. Some of the executives, the, the uh, technic, technical uh, people or engineers that are developing technology for Tesla are also developing technologies for SpaceX at the same time. So the question is, is Beijing going to put pressure on Tesla to hand over technologies that will give them insights into our launch capabilities for spy satellites or military satellites? And the answer is, of course they are. This is what Beijing always does. So there's a blurring of these lines. Anyone who gets entangled in doing business with China that requires their good graces for their business to continue to operate is going to end up basically doing what Beijing wants. Because if they don't, Beijing is going to destroy their business. And that is going to apply to Elon Musk as much as it does to a smaller company just trying to make ends meet. So the issue with with Tesla, as you described, as I understand it, is twofold. One is that publicly, in order to appease the CCP and, and to enter the market, he dialed down the the rhetoric surrounding the CCP, even though he's still very outspoken again and, and critical of certain aspects of American of the problems here in America. He's no longer speaking as much about the problems in China and even praising the CCP. The second problem is that the CCP can steal data from from uh, Tesla and, and because they share so many resources with SpaceX, that data could include very uh, key in industrial secrets like rocket technology, for instance. It reminds me of a quote from, um, and you mentioned in your book as well, from Lenin, where in the capitalists are going to sell us the ropes that we're going to use to hang them, right? Right, right. It's, it's amazing. That's, uh, that's what's going on. And by the way, I don't think we should understate uh, the part about Elon Musk you know, praising the Chinese regime. I mean, that not only advances and helps Beijing overseas, these statements get replayed on Chinese state media. I mean, it's a legitimizing function for the government there. I mean, otherwise, why would you, you know, play video clips of Elon Musk or Bill Gates or other people praising the regime? It legitimizes the regime itself. So this, is, this plays a very important uh, role that I think is oftentimes overlooked. Let me ask you this. So this is also on the issue of, of Wall Street. So at the end of 2019, the Thrift Savings Plan, which is sort of the 401k for federal employees, they reaffirmed the decision to continue allowing their fund to be invested in emerging markets yeah. like China, mostly, in fact, China. Even though a lot of the companies who are getting investment funds, meaning American federal workers investment funds, retirement funds, are actually on the entity list. Yeah. Meaning that you can do business with these companies. You, can, you can't actually conduct one-on-one business, -on -one business with these companies, right. but you can what? You can invest in them. Uh, you know, you can send your funds to them. How did this situation come about? How could you have a situation like this where com companies on the entity list, meaning these are these are companies that produce what? Weapons technologies, they produce yeah. surveillance systems used in Xinjiang, can do business with them, but you can send money to them through these money market accounts. Right. You can't do business, you can't import their goods, but you can buy a stake in the company. I mean, it's it's absurd. Uh, and, and I think really this is a problem. You're right. It, it's a reflection of the retirement system for federal employees, which is massive. But the larger issue is Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street wants it this way, and particularly a country like a company like BlackRock, 
which really uh, is the, in the forefront of index funds. This idea that we're going to just buy an index of stocks in emerging markets or in Asia or in China, this is what BlackRock excels at. And they want to sell these products to American investors. The federal retirement program is the big retirement program you want to be in. Uh, and they get a fee uh, for handling these investments. And they don't seem to be particularly concerned about the implications, which to me is highly ironic because BlackRock at the same time is pushing so-called ESG investing, where they're you know, focused on uh, investing in companies that have you know, ethical, uh, environmental, social, or governance uh, efforts. BlackRock pushes this very aggressively on companies in the United States. They don't apply them to companies in China they invest in. And the reason is Chinese companies, by and large, would not pass any of those tests. Uh, so you have this amazing paradox, and it comes down to the greed of these Wall Street firms, but also, I think, again, this sort of obsession or interest they have with the uh, efficiencies of an autocratic regime. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray Dalio is one of the people I focus on in the book. A lot of people don't necessarily know his name, but he, you know, he founded and, and helps run uh, uh, one of the largest um, hedge funds in, in the United States. Um, and uh, the problem is, is that Ray Dalio uh, is very apologetic for the Chinese regime. He, he has applauded the number two man in China, uh, Wang Qishan, uh, calls him uh, all sorts of superlatives. You know, this is a man that's helped him unlock the secrets of the universe, is one of the things that he said. And, and that this is uh, a man that's a remarkable force for good. Well, when you actually look at what this man does in China, he's really President Xi's enforcer. I mean, he's the one that purges political opponents. He helps run the repressive regime. So what prompts a man like Ray Dalio to say something like that about a man who is so much involved in the repressive nature of the Chinese regime? It's money, because after he praised him, Ray Dalio's firm, Bridgewater Associates, became one of the first hedge funds, in fact, the first hedge fund, allowed to offer its products to average Chinese investors. Mm -hmm. This is the way that it works, and unfortunately, there's too many people like Ray Dalio that are happy to make money uh, doing and saying things like this. I want to go to the next class of, of um that have been uh, captured the, using the elite capture strategy, which is the political class, although it ties in very neatly to what we've been discussing on Wall Street. Yeah. So I believe last month, if I'm not mistaken, in March, it was reported that Tony Podesta, who is John Podesta's brother, he earned a million dollars lobbying to the Biden administration on behalf of Huawei. Yeah. So this is a very interesting case because it, it really is it, such a great um, example of the revolving door that you have between people who are in the public sphere, they go to the private sphere, and then they work for a foreign entity lobbying the public, lobbying right. the, the public entity that they used to work for on behalf of this foreign entity. What are the safeguards in place that prevents this from actually happening? Zero. None. Zero. I mean, that, that's, that's sort of the stunning thing. I mean, you know, Lobbyists get a bad name, I think, for obvious reasons. Uh, but, you know, the Constitution does guarantee us the right as citizens to petition our government uh, based on our grievances or our concerns. So we all have a right to petition the government and the, the form that's often used is lobbying. Uh, but I don't see anything in the Constitution that gives the right to petition our government to 
foreign military firms, foreign government firms, uh, foreign intelligence-linked firms, uh, and yet that's what goes on. I mean, Tony Podesta is a prime example of that, but uh, there are some 23 uh, former elected officials, that's former senators or congressmen, who do that every year, who lobby on behalf of Chinese intelligence and military-linked firms. I'm not even talking about other Chinese firms. I'm just talking about military and intelligence-linked firms. And they are petitioning our government. They want uh, favors. They want to get off of restricted lists they might be on. They try to change the perception. Huawei is trying to convince people that, no, we don't have any links to you know, the Chinese uh, uh, intelligence apparatus, which is absurd. And this is a huge problem. So to me, one of the loopholes we need to close, and I don't I can't imagine there would be very many people that would, would be opposed to this, except for the people making money doing it, is simply ban the ability of foreign corporations, foreign government-linked firms to lobby in the United States. Um, that to me seems like a slam dunk. There's no reason that Tony Podesta, whose brother John Podesta, works at the highest levels of government. I mean, he was Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman. He was a counselor at the White House and the Obama administration. There's no reason a guy like Tony Podesta should be pulling in a million dollars a year from a foreign intelligence military link company like Huawei. Yeah. And I think it was a million dollars for six months. And six months, correct. Not yes, even a full right. year. You're right. So this transitions nicely to actual family members of politicians, yeah. Hunter Biden being being a key example. And in fact, you're, a large push of your book, especially in the beginning, was around Hunter Biden right. and all the dealings that he's been involved in. So here's a question. Why would Hunter Biden secure so many deals in China when his name is so famous? He's a, a famous man, a famous young man, right. Yale graduate. Yeah. His last name is that of the VPs. He can get deals across America, across 190 other countries. Why China? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think part of it is that no legitimate businesses wanted to do a deal with Hunter Biden, or you could say the same thing with James Biden, Joe Biden's brother, uh, because they don't bring anything to the table. I mean, if you're, if you're a, a financial investment firm in London or in Tokyo, uh, and you're doing business with a politician's family member, which you know is legitimate, it happens all the time, uh, it's okay as long as they're actually providing a viable service. They're either bringing capital to the table or they're bringing an investor to the table or they have some special knowledge in terms of you know, identifying investment opportunities. The Bidens don't present any of those opportunities. Uh, and that's, I think, the beginning point. The second thing you have to factor in is uh, you know, simply the notion that when you're talking about these Chinese entities that have thrown money at the Biden family, I think we also have to operate under a pretty simple assumption that they're not philanthropies. They're not simply giving the Bidens money uh, in exchange for nothing. They want something. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what are they getting in return? And when you look at the cluster of who provided the funds to the Bidens and the fact that the Bidens did not really provide anything tangible in return, this has all the markings of elite capture and of a Chinese intelligence operation. Um, we looked through the Hunter Biden laptop. We built on the existing research we had done back in 2018 in my book, Secret Empires, because we wanted to identify who made these deals happen in China, how much money are we talking about, and what was Joe Biden's role? Mm -hmm. And the answers were very clear that the Bidens got some $31 million based on the laptop 
from a series of deals uh, that happened beginning when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. Uh, and those deals happened courtesy of four uh, Chinese businessmen. And if you look at all four of those Chinese businessmen, they have links to the highest levels of Chinese intelligence. I don't mean some sort of you know distant connection. I mean they were directly linked to the highest levels. So if you look at uh, one of the uh, businessmen that helped Hunter Biden in the BHR, the Bohai Harvest private equity deal, which netted him some $20 million, mm -hmm. that gentleman at the same time that he was helping Hunter Biden secure that deal was also business partners with the vice minister for state security mm -hmm. who runs the entire spy apparatus of China. And this vice minister's job, by the way, included foreign intelligence recruitment. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the other three businessmen, they have similar types of ties to Chinese intelligence. So it's very clear what the role here was. And, you know, as somebody who lived through the Cold War, I think you're a little bit younger. You probably don't have memories there. Um, the notion that during the Cold War, Jimmy Carter's family or Ronald Reagan's family would have gotten some $31 million from Russian businessmen linked to the KGB, it'd be sending off alarm bells. That's what happened here. All we're doing is replacing the KGB with the Chinese Ministry of State Security. It's the exact same story, and it ought to be setting off this, the exact same alarm bells. So earlier you said that Hunter Biden did not really provide any kind of discernible value to these to right. these entities and business, to these people. Yes, business value. Business Correct. value. So what what value according to your research, what value did he provide? Like what concrete value? It's it's unclear. It's clear he he got some value. They received something out of it. You know, you're you're in the realm of speculation because if you look through the emails, you look through the emails of his business partners which we've looked at, you look at what the activities of these businesses are. Hunter Biden secured no deals for them. He brought in no outside capital. Um, there's nothing. So you you come to he provides provided some uh, political interference role uh, because these Chinese entities were doing deals in the United States, and some of those deals required approval by the Biden Obama administration for approval, so he could provide a political interference. There could have been some intelligence role. I mean, if they gained leverage over him, it's it's well known some of the personal uh, problems that Hunter Biden has had. Uh, they could have leveraged him and used him for an in intelligence source, blackmailed him. Those are the areas where I think the investigation needs to proceed. We now are aware of the extent of the financial relationships, what they entailed. Now the next question is, what were they getting for their money? Because I think everybody can agree, as I said earlier, they didn't uh, expect nothing in return. They expected something in return. And the fact that the money continued to flow is an indication that they got something in return. Mm. For the viewers, can you break down one of the deals that Hunter Biden struck? Maybe one of the deals uh, with BHR, like the nuclear deal or the aviation deal? Yeah, I mean, that's a, another component of this. I mean, a lot of times people think of the deals and they think that, well, this is a case of you know Hunter Biden and the family making money. But these were actually entities that were arranging deals um, that benefited the Chinese state in a military and national security manner. So Bohai Harvest RST or BHR, it's a private uh, uh, equity firm fully funded by the Chinese government, run by the Bank of China. Uh, they put Hunter Biden on the board of directors and gave him an ownership stake of the management company bizarre because he literally brings nothing to the deal. But when you look at what this entity, BHR, this, this Chinese government funded investment firm starts doing, 
and Hunter Biden's on the board, they buy an, an anchor investment stake in a firm called CGN, China General Nuclear. Um, this is a atomic power company in China that within about a year that Hunter Biden's BHR makes a, a major investment in this firm, our FBI uh, arrests senior executives for nuclear espionage. They're actually stealing nuclear secrets in the United States, the company itself and also senior executives, one of which Alan Ho ends up going to jail. And they're interested in small nuclear reactors that have military application. They're so-called dual-use technologies. Uh, there's another example where Hunter Biden's investment firm, again, financed by the Chinese government, where he's on the board, uh, buys 50% uh, of a company in Michigan called Hennigus. It's a sort of precision tool company that develops dual-use technologies. These are anti-vibration technologies that are good for you know, civilian use, but also for military use. What's suspicious about this deal is the other 50% of the company, they buy them in tandem, is the, the, uh, chi the aviation company of China, uh, which has a long history of engaging in espionage in the United States. In fact, uh, many of the technologies they stole from us based on our stealth fighter went into producing their stealth fighter. There are other examples. There's, there's a mining company in Africa that's mining for critical minerals. There's a competition for strategic minerals between Beijing and Washington. Hunter Biden's Chinese firm, again, where he's on the board, buys up mines in Africa that benefit the Chinese state in its competition with the United States. So the bottom line is there are very serious implications for these deals. Hunter Biden's on the board. He has some kind of you know, knowledge of these deals taking place, participation, he's profiting from it, and all of these deals are benefiting the Chinese state in its competition with the United States. It's extraordinary. I've never seen anything like this uh, involving a political family this prominent. So let me ask you this. So your research implicates Hunter. Yeah. But do you, do you have any evidence or any research that would show that Joe Biden also you know, benefit financially from any of these deals? Uh, yes, we do. I mean, what's interesting, and the emails make this clear, is that within the Biden family, money is fungible. It moves around. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for this. Some of this is Hunter Biden himself. Uh, you know, there's messages in the uh, laptop where he's communicating with his daughter. His daughter's in, the in her 20s. She's asking Hunter for money. Any parent who has a child in their 20s probably has had this kind of conversation. Uh, and Hunter basically replies, look, I don't have a lot of money right now. Um, you're going to have to kind of stand on your own. But, you know, going forward, as you get older, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to do what pop, meaning Joe Biden has asked me to do, which is turn over half my money. Uh, so this is Hunter Biden saying uh, that he goes out and makes money, but some of that money is going to his dad or is going to other family members, and that's his role in the family. Now, you could look at this and say, well, this is, maybe this is hyperbole. Hunter's having a bad day. He's frustrated. As you dig further into the laptop, you see that Hunter Biden is collecting this money from overseas, from China, from Ukraine, and elsewhere, uh, but that he's also paying his father's monthly bills. Um, that's interesting because it not only shows that 
Joe Biden's a beneficiary of these foreign deals. It's actually illegal. Uh, politicians are not allowed to have family members subsidize their lifestyles by paying their bills. Mm. But in addition to monthly bills, Hunter Biden's also making payments on renovations on Joe Biden's home in Delaware when he's having work done on the House. So it's very clear that Joe Biden is a direct beneficiary of these deals. When he leaves the vice presidency in January of 2017, other foreign deals are in the works, including with CEFC, the Chinese energy company. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the email, the, the Hunter's going to hold 10% for the big guy, uh, comes into play. So after he left the vice presidency, he was going to start to be juiced in to some of these overseas deals. And the truly, I think, scary part on top of that is the plans were for Joe Biden to actually share office space in Washington, D.C. with some of these Chinese companies and with his son. The only reason that didn't take place is the FBI arrested executives from CEFC. Mm -hmm. And then I think the handwriting was so on the wall uh, that they had to step away from it. So this was the Biden family working very closely with these entities. Hunter would, Hunter would collect the money. Some of the money would go to James Biden. But Joe Biden himself was absolutely a financial beneficiary of these deals. Is this co common just outside of the Biden family as well? Can you give the audience an idea of what would happen if a foreign entity were to give money directly to a politician versus give it to their family? And is it common for foreign entities to give money to the family members of the politicians they're trying to influence? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the ethics laws and the bribery laws and those statutes in the United States, uh, they're very, very clear cut, which is good in some respects. But on the other hand, it provides all kinds of ways to sort of step around those laws. So one of those ways to step around those laws is to channel money to a family member. I mean, let's assume for a second you're the esteemed senator from New York, which I think would be a great idea given, given who's occupying those seats right away. But let's say you're a senator from the state of New York. If I walk into your office and I give you a shoebox of $100,000 mm -hmm. uh, in return for a favor or, or for any reason, if we get caught, we're both going to jail. But if you have a son who's, say, 25, who lives in Washington, D.C., he's been trouble finding a job. You know, he's a great kid, but he just quite hasn't gotten a start in life professionally. But if I want to influence you and I hire him and I give him, you know, a big fat salary, I put him on the board of my investment firm, even though he has no expertise and no background, and he can now whisper into your ear uh, favors, things that I want done, and you start doing those things, you start adopting that posture for me, um, that is, I would say, illegal, but it's very hard to prove in a criminal sense. Because first you have to prove that I hired the kid solely because I wanted to influence you. It may be obvious from a factual standpoint, but you still have to prove it. Then you have to prove the money flowing here leads to the son having communications with the father. And again, that's more, so this sort of offshoring of corruption, not making payments to politicians, but making it to their family members is a very attractive business model for the person looking for favors and for the politician who's trying to avoid scrutiny. Mm -hmm. This is the way the business has been done uh, involving political uh, families in China for a long time, also in the United States, so it's not new, but it's become much more popular as corruptions become globalized. As you have all these foreign entities that are now looking for favors from the US government, this has become the method, the preferred method of operation, and it involves Republicans and Democrats in Congress, uh, the executive branch, 
and elsewhere. With the example you gave, it seems like perhaps the thinking was that if this ever came to light, the media exposure of this whole thing would be enough to kick that person out of office, right? Right. But it seems like that's not the case. It seems like everything you've discussed, it's, it's out there. Yeah. It's out there. I was able to do enough research to find this. Your book is out there. But it seems like th that's not enough. It seems like that's not enough to actually get people uh, to, let's say, not follow the law because you said it's not necessarily legal, but to at least not have this this appearance of of a uh, of, uh, conflict of interest, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and the key thing here is the role played by the media, by big tech, because they control social media, uh, but also the media writ large, the New York Times, the Washington Post, etc. Uh, I first wrote about the Bidens in 2018 in a book called Secret Empires. And it hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, so obviously clear interest in this subject. Other than the Wall Street Journal, which ran a sort of straight news piece, really nobody else in the mainstream media touched that story. Uh, flash forward to 2020, when the laptop story emerged, mainstream media uh, said, well, we can't verify this. They never even tried to verify it. I mean, that's, that's part of the bizarre thing here. And big tech censored it. So the point is, you can have this information, you can lay out what's going on in the case of Biden's or someone else, but if the media won't actually do the hard work of reporting the story, these are complicated stories, they're not easy, or if they're gonna censor because of political bias, which clearly they did in 2020, um, the American public's not going to have this critical information and our, our political system can't function the way that it should. That if it's hard to prove something's illegal, at least people are gonna suffer a political consequence for engaging in this behavior. They're gonna lose elections or they're gonna not get reelected. That only operates or works on the assumption that the media is actually gonna report on these stories, and sadly, too often they don't. Which brings us to the fourth uh, type of elite capture, which is the entertainment slash media camp. So there was a great quote from, uh, who was it, from Andrew Breitbart, yeah. that politics is downstream from culture. Yeah. So it seems like the CCP is also attacking the entertainment and culture in, uh, in industry as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they've gotten very involved in Hollywood, uh, buying studios, uh, AMC for a while, the movie theater. They, they controlled that for a very long time. And many of these people that, that owned these uh, companies that were buying in Hollywood were quite outspoken. That uh, They were CCP supporters, CCP members, uh, et cetera. Uh, and what happens is censorship happens. So you have a situation today where any sort of uh, thriller movie, which I love to see, uh, the enemy, the, the, the threat is not going to be China. It's going to be Russia. It's going to be, you know, vague Middle Eastern terrorists. It might be somebody from Belarus, because what's Belarus going to do to Hollywood? But the problem is it distorts the reality uh, of what the real looming challenges and threats are out there. So it leads to censorship. Now, the obvious censorship is if you make a movie uh, and you want to distribute it in China, if there's something in it they don't like, they're not gonna distribute it in China. But the spillover effect, it, it leads to censorship in the United States because the big Hollywood studios want to have their films distributed in China. Mm -hmm. And if they make one that the CCP doesn't like, Beijing may very well say, well, we're not gonna distribute any of your movies. Uh, you see the same thing going on in, in the sports world, in the NBA. Uh, the controversy that erupted a couple of years ago where Mr. Morley, who was the general manager of the Houston Rockets, simply tweeted his support for the Freedom Fighters 
peaceful protesters in Hong Kong that were opposed to the CCP full takeover of their city, uh, he was fired by the Houston Rockets. And the NBA apologized to Beijing. So the, the, the problem is it leads to censorship in the United States and it leads to a distorted notion uh, to the average American who's not necessarily reading my books or watching your broadcasts they get the impression that things in China are fine, that China doesn't represent a threat. Uh, they're not anything to worry about because after all, I don't see them as bad guys in the movies. Uh, the NBA th seems to think they're decent people. It really uh, frightens me because it changes the atmospherics of where the reality of the planet is today as to where the entertainment media tells us or tells the American people where it is, which is vastly different. Uh, what you said is so so spot on because as you were saying it, I, I realized also that not only the production studios, but the actors themselves, if a production studio does want to step out and say, hey, we will make a movie that criticizes China, a lot of the A-list actors, they don't want to be part of that movie because they, they themselves might get banned. So that even if they do produce a movie, it might not have the A-list actors that would draw in a big crowd. It's a, it's a terrible cycle. Yeah, there was, a, there was a great new book that came out called Red Carpet by a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. And he actually quotes people that says, look, there's a reason that Richard Gere, the actor, is not in any major films anymore. That's because he, oh my gosh, he made a film that was supportive of Tibet and the Dalai Lama. Beijing didn't like it. And now all the big studios, and that film was made, what, 20 years ago. All the big studios will not hire Richard Gere to do a film because Beijing will be upset by it. I mean, that's the power of what we're talking about. And that, as you point out, has a chilling effect. Nobody wants to be the guy that can no longer appear in a major film because they decided to be honest and truthful uh, from what they're seeing, uh, the conduct that Beijing's engaging in. Yeah, I wanna get your opinion on something. I was at a conser young conservative event not too long ago, and I was just asking people about their experience of being censored here and there, but I was really surprised, I didn't, I, because I, I, I'm, I guess I'm too old uh, for myself, but I don't use uh, TikTok. Yeah. But so many of the 18, let's say 17 to 22 year olds I spoke with, they gave the same story, that they were posting conservative content on TikTok and they were taken down, they were shadow banned. Uh, that, of course, happens in all the platforms. But what do you make of the fact that TikTok, which is owned by ByteDance, of course, a Chinese, uh, well, Chinese Communist Party linked company, a right. CCP company all the way, what do you make of the fact that so many of America's young people use this as their platform for communicating with the world? I think it's a huge problem because of the censorship issue that you talked about. I also think that, that one of the problems with TikTok is it's, it's a highly addictive algorithm. Um, I mean, this is, you, you, you know, if you want to think of a, of a grand conspiracy, I'm not saying this is necessarily what's, what's at work here, but if you want to dumb down the American population, TikTok is a great way to do it because it destroys your attention span. It's highly addictive. It leads uh, people to follow these sort of endless videos. Uh, and, um, you know, this is a Chinese company. Um, and the algorithm, uh, my understanding, and I'm certainly not a tech guy, but reading quite a bit about it, the algorithm that TikTok uses is designed precisely for addiction. Uh, Facebook and, and other social media certainly tries to nudge you and encourage you in certain ways, but they don't have the sort of addictive nature of the algorithm of TikTok. So it's an enormous problem. And anybody who says, well, you know, ByteDance has this US affiliate mm -hmm. that's responsible, you know, to me, that's just laughable. Mm -hmm. um, the, the US affiliate is controlled by 
ByteDance in China, and China is under the authority of the CCP and the Chinese state. And if the Chinese state wants information on users, if they want to censor certain material, which they're certainly already doing, they can get it any single time they want. And it seems like with, with TikTok in particular, they push this addictive content, but even within that context, they don't share let's say a conservative viewpoint, or they, they push the kind of political viewpoint that they wish to have enacted in America, which when I, when I, when I was speaking with them, I just it, suddenly a light bulb went off in my mind, where even if let's say they, they suppress 2% of a type of political content that they don't right. like, it might be small enough that you don't recognize what's happening, but it could quite literally shape the future of America because the young people don't think like, oh, this is a mainstream viewpoint because it's not on TikTok. That's right. I mean, this is where the vast majority of young people get their ideas and their information from. Unfortunately, as a book author, I would hope that they would go into the library, and I know many of them do. I'm not you know, minimizing that. But the average rank and file uh, young person out there is looking at TikTok, they're looking at Twitter for their information, and these are platforms that are censoring really one side of the political equation. I don't hear a lot of people that are connected with Black Lives Matter or Antifa complaining about TikTok uh, banning their content or restricting their content. It's really on one side of the political equation. So this is gonna distort, again, uh, what young people are exposed to. And look, peer pressure is a factor. And they may have conservative ideas and values, but if they're not seeing it out in the public marketplace, they start to think, well, I'm odd or I'm weird or I'm different. Um, and it's going to have a corrosive effect on their worldview. Yeah. So that ties into the last uh, category of elite capture that you discuss in your book, which is what's happening in the education system. Yeah. So right now, it seems like every week, or at least every two weeks, you hear another of a high, another high-profile case of some professor getting caught up as actually having been a Chinese spy or not reporting his connections to the CCP. There was, in fact, a case uh, three days ago where there was a chemistry professor at the University of Kansas who was a, either Chinese-American or a Chinese national who was not disclosing that he was, has actual ties to the CCP. Can you give us some examples? How does this actually play out in American universities? It's a great question. I mean, when you talk about universities, it's a problem on multiple levels. One is just the technology transfer, where we have you know, this professor at Kansas. There have been other instances where people are being paid by their universities to do research. They're getting federal government grants, sometimes from the Department of Defense or other entities, and then they're actually signing up as consultants or advisors with Chinese firms and taking the technology we're developing in paying for and siphoning and sending it to Beijing. That's, that's one of the problems. The other problem is how it's influencing the political debate in the United States. Uh, and that's one of the things I focus on in the book. There's a flood of uh, Chinese mainland money that is coming to American universities. It's being sent to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, by very successful entrepreneurs in China that are wedded to the CCP and the, or the Chinese state. Um, one of them that, that I talk about is Joe Tsai, who is a co-founder of Alibaba. Uh, he's worth some $20 billion. If you look at the history of Alibaba, this is a company that was nurtured and benefited from the fact that it was linked closely to the CCP. And Josiah is somebody who's spoken on American college and universities, made all kinds of excuses for the Chinese government's abusive behavior. Uh, and he has given hundreds of millions of dollars to American universities like Yale. Mm -hmm. Now, American colleges and universities are required by federal law dating back to 1965 to disclose 
uh, donations coming from overseas. But they hide it. Sometimes they don't report it. Sometimes they fudge it. If you look over the last couple of years at Yale University's disclosures on foreign donations, you know, guess what the number one country is that has sent them money? Officially? Officially. Brazil. <laughs> it's a great guess. It's the island of Guernsey, which mm -hmm. is a offshore entity in the UK. It's a tax haven. Mm -hmm. Guernsey's sending money? No, Guernsey's not sending money. Joe Tsai has offshore accounts on the island of Guernsey. He's sending money to Yale University, but Yale is deceptively hiding or masking where that money is coming from and saying it's coming from Guernsey, even though they full well know it is the co-founder of Alibaba that's sending this money. So the first problem we have is the flow of this money, universities are trying to hide it. And if you look at what a lot of the universities will say candidly is, this money often comes with strings attached. Uh, in the case of Joe Tsai, he set up a, a Chinese law study center at Yale University. Uh, I did a lit review of some of the material that that entity has put out. It's very pro-Beijing. It talks about how President Xi is bringing law and order to China, uh, about how he's normalizing rules, he's creating a more independent judiciary. Uh, anybody who studies China and has looked over the last decade under Xi's rule knows that's hogwash, that's ridiculous, it's not true. So it's really changing scholarship and it's changing opinion uh, among academics in the United States. That's part of the goal. But the final part of it is the effect that it's having on students. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, there's a very interesting case of a, a gentleman named Nathan Law, who was a human rights activist in Hong Kong, was at the age of 23 elected to the legislative body in Hong Kong on a platform of freedom and individual rights. When the CCP came over with the police state, started arresting people, they threw Nathan Law into jail for six months, and then they kicked him out of the country. And what did he do? He went to Yale, and it made sense because Yale has this long history of ties to mainland China. But when he showed up at Yale, he was shocked. Uh, he was shocked because the atmosphere on campus uh, was very aggressively against him. Uh, the Psy Center certainly never invited him to come and speak about his experiences on a law or on China, even though he was an elected official there. Uh, and when he made presentations elsewhere, he found himself shouted down by students at Yale that were um, from the mainland. Uh, there are hundreds of them that, that attend Yale. And he really was shocked to find that the university administration would not back him up and would not defend him. So this is a very real problem, not just at Yale, at other college campuses. And again, we need to recognize the effect it's not only having on the current debate, but how it's influencing the perception that young people have towards mainland China and what the CCP is actually doing. You, you give another example in the book about the University of Pennsylvania uh, in regards to Joe Biden. Can you set that stage for us? Yeah, I mean, this is a, another example of the way in which money can flow, and it's hard to know exactly uh, where that money is going. Uh, when Joe Biden left the vice presidency in January 2017, he became a, a professor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and they set up the Biden Center, the Biden Penn Center, uh, to study uh, global affairs. Uh, and it's interesting, as soon as that happened, there was a huge spike in money come from, coming from mainland China 
to the University of Pennsylvania. Now, the Biden Center does not keep separate finances, so it's hard to know how much of the Chinese money ended up there. But in my mind, there's no question that there's a relationship between the launching of the Biden Center and the increased flow in, in Chinese money. So, you know, what has the net effect been? Well, one, if you look at the Biden Penn Center, uh, they talk about the study of global statesmanship. So there's a nice picture of uh, Vice President, then Vice President Joe Biden with President Xi of China. That's kind of the picture that they disclose. Mm -hmm. Then further down on the website, they disclo disclose what are the chief threats that the United States is facing. No mention of China. The only three mentioned are climate change, Russia, and global terrorism. Wow. You know, you certainly could say Russia and global terrorism represent a threat. I mean, if you want to, you could say climate change if you believe in that. But the notion that China does not represent a threat to the United States is ab absurd. Because remember, the Obama-Biden administration actually did a pivot. We actually redeployed military forces from Europe to Asia precisely because it was recognized that China was a threat, but the Biden Center says nothing about that. So that's another example of how the debate and the conversation on college campuses are being skewed, I would argue, because of the flow of Chinese money, in the case of Joe Biden, to his family, but also to the Biden-Penn Center. We discussed a lot. We discussed the five categories of elite capture. And I wanna end this on, as much as, as, as troubling as everything that we've discussed is, I wanna end it on a hopeful note. Good. So you have, within the education system, you have the schools being funded by China, the professors are at times Chinese spies, you have a lot of the Chinese students being part of the United Front, you have the entertainment industry, the political class, you have Wall Street, you have big tech. What is the hope here? What is the hope moving forward that this country can recover and, and not, let's say, well, let, let's, let's break it up into two questions. One is, if we continue down this road, where will we end up? And what is the hope that that won't happen? Well, if we continue down this road, we'll lose. Um, and China will become the supreme superpower on the, on the planet. And some people would say, well, I live in Iowa or I live in upstate New York. Why do I care? Well, you should care because already life in the United States has changed and been transformed because China's a rising power. When they become the supreme power, it's going to affect our economy. It's going to affect our ability to engage in free speech. It's going to affect our tech companies. It's going to affect our currency it's gonna have enormous implications, so it, it, it affects you. If we continue on this path, that is the end result. I am ultimately hopeful, and here's why. First of all, in the battle of ideas, to me, there's no competition. Uh, the appeal of Marxism-Leninism is limited. It's limited in the United States, and I would argue it's limited in China. Uh, the CCP has some 100 million members out of a, a country of more than a billion people. Many people, I would argue, that are members of the CCP in China are there because they're opportunists. They know it's going to be good for their career. I just don't believe there are a lot of Marxist-Leninist deep believers, true believers, in, in China itself. And that, to me, presents an opportunity, not just for us to clear things up here in our country, to enact reforms, restrictions on their ability to lobby, restrictions on the flow of capital that we're sending to China, things that are gonna protect our country. I think if we got serious about the battle of ideas uh, with Beijing, we would win. I think they have appeal in China as much as they did in Russia, as much as they did in Eastern Europe. Not in a perfect way. I'm not suggesting that everybody in China wants to be Thomas Jefferson, but there are strands of Chinese history that speak to a more liberal 
understanding of what a government should do as opposed to what the CCP is doing. Their, their shred of authority, I think, rests on the rapid economic expansion that has occurred in China over the last 40 years. That is a result of us working hand in glove with the CCP. Mm -hmm. If we get serious about separating the Chinese people who we want to be friends with from the CCP, which we do not, I think the future can actually reside with us. But what that's going to take is political courage. It's going to take the political class not taking these payoffs. We need to expose them, let people know what's going on, because I think shame is still a powerful tool that can be used. Um, and if we can actually have a battle of ideas uh, with China, a political battle, I'm optimistic that we will win. We just need to make sure that elite capture doesn't succeed before we get to that point. Peter Schweizer, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Me as well.